everyone. How's it going? If this is your first time at the podcast, hey, welcome. And if you're a longtime listener, thanks so much for coming back. We hope that you're all doing great out there. Today we have a chance to speak with another author. It is Gina Chung. She's with us. Today we are going to be talking about Sea Change, which is her debut novel. Just released here in the United States a few days ago on March 28th. So welcome to the show, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. How does it feel to uh, finally give birth to this book? It feels so surreal um, and really just joyful. Um, but I can't, I, I, it didn't feel real for a very long time. And now that the book is in stores and I'm seeing pictures from friends and family who are buying it and being supportive, it feels that much more real. So um, yeah, it feels amazing. I mean, it's been a lifelong dream of mine to be an author. So to be here is uh a, like a real joy and just again doesn't feel quite real <laughs> yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh so hey yeah, a little bit about you where are you uh calling from today yeah i'm in uh brooklyn here in new york and uh, i've lived here now almost 10 years which i've heard from my native new yorker friends is like the window of time that you have to be in new york in order to call yourself a new yorker so i'm okay. almost there <laughs> you're, at the, you're at the precipice yeah you're right there all right what's good in uh brooklyn these days you know, it, it's that weird kind of awkward stage right now where it's like beginnings of early spring. And so no one really knows how to dress like, you know, between um, my walk from like home to the subway or to the store. I see like any number of different ways of dressing where some people are still in their winter parkas. Other people <laughs> are in shorts and flip flops because they're of the, you know, and I understand yeah. that mindset of just willing the warm weather to be here. So <laughs> But it's nice to see, you know, trees flowering. I'm not too far from Prospect Park here in Brooklyn. And so it's it's nice to know that like the warmer days and sunshine are on their way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, see, in San Francisco, I don't know if you know the West Coast that much, but in San Francisco, we don't really have ho uh, seasons. <laughs> like our seasons are kind of blurred together. It's kind of fall all year long here. So, uh, you know, if you go somewhere like New York or anywhere on that Atlantic East Coast, you get real seasons. And I kind of... A little jealous of that because uh, it, it's kind of nice when spring springs. It's kind of like, oh wow, it's really spring now. <laughs> mm, but you have you all have that amazing NorCal sunshine, from what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. Well, except for this year. This year is the the wettest year I can remember. But uh, yeah, we've had so much rain this year. But normally, yeah, normally we get that southern that uh, that sunshine. Mm. Uh, do you mind if we dig into your roots a little bit? Yeah, totally. Uh, so where were you born? Are you born in New Jersey? I was actually born in Queens. Um, oh, okay. And that's where I spent, I think, the first three years of my life before my parents moved us out to the New Jersey suburbs. And uh, yeah, and then I grew up in Bergen County in northern New Jersey. And so I think spiritually, I feel more connected to New Jersey for that reason, even though I now live in New York City. Uh -huh, so, uh -huh. Yeah. And that's where the, the book takes place in New Jersey? Yes, the book is set also in uh, northern New Jersey. Ah, ah. And you're Korean-American? Yes, my family is Korean. My parents are both uh, immigrants who came here in the 80s from South Korea. Okay, okay. So do you grow up with a lot of Korean in the house, a lot of Korean food every night? You have like nine dishes of banchan every night? Or what was your uh, family dinner like? Yeah, we were a fairly traditional Korean family in a lot of ways. Uh, my mom is an incredible cook. And so every meal was pretty much, as you said, like a lot of side dishes, a lot of pantan. Um, 
she loves to cook and experiment though. So sometimes we would also have like, I think she, she wanted to bring in what she saw as American food as well to the house, but definitely every meal like had to have kimchi. Like that was just like a staple. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely grew up in the, in the, in the nineties and the early aughts with my fair share of like American snack and junk food as well, mm-hmm. just because I like would ask for it <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Growing up. Um, Uh And yeah, I grew up speaking Korean. I still do with my family. Uh, I'm not incredibly fluent anymore. I'm more at kind of like a fourth, fifth grade level, I'd say with my (laughs) Korean. And I also grew up attending uh, Korean school, which was on Saturdays when I was Uh growing up. And at the time, you know, I hated Korean school. I hated the fact that I had to go to school again (laughs) on the weekend (laughs) while my my non-Korean friends didn't have to. But in retrospect, I really appreciate it because now I can like read and write and speak at a level that I definitely wouldn't have been able to had my parents not pushed me in that direction. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a very common story. You know, you hate it so much, but then at the same time, you wish you were better. You know? Yeah, it's such a it's such a thing. Like you know, eventually you realize that a lot of the things your parents were nagging you about, they were actually kind of right. <laughs> yeah, uh, annoyingly right. Uh, you were right. Uh, so you mentioned a little minute ago that you have. A lifelong dream was to publish a novel. Uh, so when did this dream start? Was it literally when you're a little kid, you're writing short stories for class? Or when did the dream of actually becoming a writer take place in your life? Yeah, I think I was, like a lot of writers, I was a pretty voracious reader starting at a young age. And um, the moment I realized that people could write books, I, that was kind of what yeah. I aspired to do. Um, at a young age, I actually was really obsessed with um, Anne Frank, because I received uh-huh. like a children's abridged version of Anne Frank's diary. And yeah. at the time, I think I was like seven or eight years old, like not much younger than Anne Frank herself was when she started the diary. And yeah, I remember yeah. just being really moved and impressed at the fact that, you know, this person who many decades ago in a very different time and place, like was able to write all these things about her life at such a young age that, you know, went on to impact so many people around the world. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was really, I loved the idea of becoming a writer, but I actually stayed away from writing for a couple of years from starting from high school into college because I had this idea that, you know, so many of us Asian Americans and kids of immigrants experience where I was like, well, it's not really practical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what are other ways that I can stay involved in the world of literature and writing without necessarily taking the the big scary leap to become a writer? And right. so for many years, I... I worked in book publishing and then eventually when it was around like 2018, 2017, I just decided to take the plunge to apply for MFA programs because uh-huh. I kind of figured that I had gotten as good as I could get sort of on my own and cobbling together different understandings of writing through these classes I've been taking. Um, I'd also been exchanging writing with a friend, but then uh, she got pregnant and had a baby and just couldn't <laughs> devote time to yeah, writing yeah. as much as, you know, under very understandably. And totally so I was kind of that. like... Yeah. Yeah. I was like, well, I guess I'll apply to MFA programs and see what happens. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of how I started started to pick up that that track of getting back on the writing journey again. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, with with debut novels, I think a lot of times if you write kind of like a coming of age people are going to ask you, so uh, who are you in this novel? Or is, is, are you Ro? You know, are you secretly Ro? Did you have a boyfriend leave you for Mars? You know, <laughs> are these the kind of questions you're going to be getting? Like, um, how much, you know, did did you kind of look at your life and write what you know? Then how much of it ended up in this book? 
That's a great question. Yeah, I think that happens to so many writers, especially as you said, debut writers writing coming of age stories, definitely to writers of color. Um, I I always say with this book that Roe, you know, is of course not me, mm-hmm. um, but that her story has emotional roots in my own, particularly sure, yeah. with regards to images and events from her childhood and with her family. So Roe grows up an only child and I didn't, I have, I have a younger sister. And so I think a lot of my, my childhood and family trajectory was shaped by not being the only person in my family who was of my generation. Uh, Whereas uh, for Roe, she's kind of the only person in her family who's witness to the things that are happening between her parents and their troubled marriage and the way that they sort of pass on understandings of conflict um, to her and some of those things definitely did uh some of those things definitely did come from my own experiences um i in the family that i grew up in we it was it's funny because my parents are such emotionally expressive people which totally goes against that stereotype that mm. that asian american that asian people are you know robotic or something like that uh, yeah. um but at the same time they we it was not very is not a very done thing for us to talk openly about our emotions. And whenever there were fights or conflicts or disagreements, whether they were between my parents or between me and my parents, like we would have these blowout fights or disagreements and then just never talk about it ever again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how that's changed for all of us as we've gotten older. Like my, Uh my relationship with my parents has completely changed now that I'm an adult and they're older and they're in a very different place than they were when they first came to this country. But yeah, a lot of that, that dynamic um, ended up in the novel, especially I think the dynamic of being in an immigrant family where you are, there's so much pressure to try and make it in this country that it becomes like, you know, you just don't have the time and the bandwidth to attack, to address all these other things when it comes to your emotions and to conflict and how can you, how can you really see each other in that way? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the book. It's called Sea Change. It is a really fun read. I I, I saw it on a list of books that, uh, well, who was it? Entertainment Weekly, I think, put you on a list of books to shake off the winter, what do they call it? The winter chill or the winter... I think it was the winter blues. The winter blues. Yeah. So it's a good, it's a good spring book, I think. So it's, it's, it's not... Well, it could be a beach read, but I think it's a great book that you guys could all pick up. Available now pretty much anywhere you can buy books, uh, preferably your local bookstore. Do you have a a Brooklyn bookstore that you want to shout out real quick? Oh, there are so many, but one there of my are. favorites is definitely uh, Books Are Magic. Uh, and uh, I'm actually doing an event with them on April 12th, and it's going to be at their Montague Street location. Uh, but yeah, I love... I love uh, my local indies and they have such a great selection there and such a great roster of events too. It's a great place to go to like catch some of your favorite writers reading. Absolutely. So everyone go out there and get a copy of Sea Change. You won't regret it. Uh, Let's see, Gina, do you mind giving us a quick summary of Sea Change with no spoilers? (laughs) Yeah, sure. I'll do my best. So Sea Change is a coming of age story about a 30 year old Korean American woman who happens to work at an aquarium where she cares for a giant Pacific octopus named Dolores. And at the start of the book, when we meet her, she's sort of at this crossroads in her life where she's grappling with a lot of loss. Her boyfriend has just left her and not only left her, but left the planet to (laughs) (laughs) go on a mission to colonize Mars. And 
She's also grappling with the long ago disappearance of her father, who was a marine biologist who discovered the octopus that she now works with at the aquarium. And it's um, a novel about, I would say, learning how to show up for yourself in a world that seems to always be changing and learning how to stay for yourself when it seems like everyone else in your life might be leaving you. And some of the other relationships that Ro is grappling with are with her her best friend, Yoon-hee, who works with her and is now getting married and seems to be leaving her behind on the road to adulthood. And also with her mother, with whom she's never really been able to talk about or process her mm-hmm. the disappearance of her father. Yeah, lots of things going on in Rose's life. We'll talk about that in a second. But I want to throw out a spoiler alert for anyone out there. If you want to uh, get a copy of this book, uh, stop this podcast, go get, go grab a copy of Sea Change, and come back when you're done. It's it's a it's a quick, what is it, two hundred and eighty pages or so. It's a it's a quick little read. So grab it, uh, hit pause, grab it, give it a read, and come back and listen to the rest of us. I was thinking about a song to play. Usually, I play a song for the spoiler alert and you recommended something from new jersey but i found a song in the book do you know what i'm gonna say oh i don't know which one is it hotel california right uh, so yeah. yep. <laughs> the awkward dance scene so we will have uh well, actually it wasn't awkward for the parents but for the daughter yeah a little bit <laughs> awkward for Ro. so uh maybe we'll play a little bit of hotel california here and we'll by the time the song is over if you haven't read the book uh, be aware, you might get some spoilers. If not, you're welcome to stay and listen to us talk about it and then read the book. Up to you. So uh, enjoy Hotel California. Do you want to start with plot or characters first? What do you like to start with? Um, great question. Let's do let's do characters first because I feel like plot is informed by character. So yeah, yeah I, I agree. And that's what this book is a character driven book, right? Like, uh, real real quick, you know, the plot is not action packed. I, I would say it's really more about what's going on inside and what's you know happening in and around Row. So let's start with her. I think you got to uh, you got to start start with Row. Uh, well, short for Aurora Bay, uh, Aurora is her first name, um, mm-hmm. but her Korean name is Bayarim. How would you say that, Adam? Yeah, Adam, Pay uh, Adam in Korean. Yeah, yeah, sorry, my Korean is no good. But everyone calls her Ro, or she actually prefers that, right? She doesn't, if anyone calls her Aurora, does she stop them right away and say, no, it's Ro? Yeah, I think Aurora just feels like it's such an aspirational name, and she's definitely not an aspirational character. (laughs) So, yeah, I think she prefers it for that reason. Yeah, but to her mom, she's always going to be Autumn. And to her dad, she's Acorn. And to her friends, she's Ro. Um, And then, you know, uh, she is, she's a little messy, right? She's got a little stuff going on in her life. She makes some poor choices, and she admits it, you know. And what 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 were you trying to write when you're trying to write Ro? Or who are you trying to write when you're trying to write Ro? I so I personally really love. Um, I'm drawn to, I guess, messy characters. Mm-hmm. Like whether it's writing about them or reading about them. Um, I think some some of that might be because, like, for my own psychological reasons, it might be that I really enjoy getting to like, I don't know, kind of get to have a character make mistakes on the page that like I 
don't think I would allow myself to make, (laughs) which which isn't to say that I'm, you know, without mess in my own way, of course. But um, one of the reasons I really wanted to write Roe in this way and to have this kind of messy, uh, often self-sabotaging character is because I, I feel like that depiction is still so very limited for women of color and definitely for Asian American mm. and Korean American women. Yeah. Um, I think that there has been a shift in media and art to sort of allow for messier female characters generally, like, and certainly on TV shows and movies and, and literature. But by and large, a lot of those depictions tend to be limited to white women. And like yeah. a lot of times also they're used for comedic effect. Like, oh, isn't it so funny that you know, Lena Dunham's character, for example, in Girls is such a mess. And I, I'm i very interested in that. Um, and also, I really wanted to make room for the kind of character that I've always been interested in, that I know, you know, I've, I've known people like Ro. I've been her sometimes <laughs> sure, at various yeah. points in my life. Yeah, um, all of this. Yeah, so I, I wanted to sort of give her space to be messy and to make those mistakes but also to be self-aware about them at the same time um, because she is a character who is extremely introspective. Like she's so, I like to say she's like a pretty smart character, but she's also very stupid sometimes. Right. <laughs> I love we know that person. Like, we all know that person, right? Yeah, exactly. We <laughs> like, all have that friend or we've been that friend, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, she's so likable. Like I think, I think you could see why people would like her and be drawn to her, but at the same time, shake their head. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Did you again, you know, again, you know, kind of ideas with her, but yeah, very likable and, and lost, you know, in a lot of ways. And this is her journey, uh, for, for a a moment, but we get flashbacks to her younger self as well. And we get a little bit of explanation, but yeah, really, really well done character. And and I agree with you. I, I think that, you know, that messy character that we just have, you know, maybe, maybe Ali Wong kind of is the epitome of, of that character, you know, where it's kind of like when she came out and was just saying the stuff that she was saying, you know, theoretically about herself, we're like, whoa, you know, taking it back. Mm-hmm. You've never heard an Asian woman say that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, okay. You know, this is real. This is, this is interesting. So, yeah. yeah. And it, it feels like such a, yes, I, I agree. It, it feels shocking on some level. Like even for me as an Asian American woman, who's like right. also made my own fair share of mistakes, but like, it feels like also like such a breath of fresh air and it feels like permission. Like the first time I ever yeah. saw Ali Wong's like Netflix, her very first Netflix uh-huh. special, I was like, oh my God, finally, finally yeah. someone is out here and explaining what it is to be like, a complicated, um, at times very messy, impulsive mm-hmm. Asian American woman. Like we exist and we're out here and we're not yeah. like these two dimensional caricatures, nor right. are we just objects for, for male desire. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I love Ellie Wong and just was so ex- I'm so excited by everything she does both as a yeah. comedian, as an actor. And yeah. Absolutely. You know, she's, she's been named, you know, at the end of the show, we pick our infatuations. She's been picked more than once from people just getting inspired by her. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah. So this, this idea of a messy character is, is no stranger to Rose. So she is, she's the lead and the main and everyone else kind of revolves around her. I had a question, maybe we can say this for, now let's go into it now. (laughs) So I had a question (laughs) that, did you write, like there's so many different sub sub stories or little little interactions with you know there's Rose's relationship with her parents there's Rose's relationship with Tay there's Rose's relationship with Yoon Hee. 
did you write them separately and then weave them together? Or did you kind of have like a, a, a chart on your wall with lines and, you know, how are they going to, sometimes they come together, sometimes they're, you know, they're very apart. How did you write the the plot? Yeah, I, I kind of wish it was like an interesting answer, like the the wall with uh, the, the strings <laughs> drawing them all together. But I'm actually like a frustratingly kind of linear writer. Okay. So um, the way I decided to sort of draft this project was, I once I had an idea for who the main character was and what the main emotional beats of the story were, I kind of just outlined everything like chapter by chapter and just actually sort of wrote it in that order. And um, I knew that with al- using an alternating past present structure the way I did in this bu- in this book, it would allow me to delve more into the childhood scenes, into who Rose's parents were, as well as how her relationship with her best friend Yoonhee began. The character that I actually struggled the most with was Tay, her boyfriend, mm-hmm. where because I think he doesn't get as much page time, but he still is like very big in her memories and in her reminiscence of, of the relationship. One of the the like weird little writer tips that I heard about and that I tried to sort of access this character was I ended up writing like a letter from him, from his point of view. Oh where he just talked about his side of the relationship and the uh-huh. breakup. And I was like, oh, this is actually really helpful. It's kind of like method acting, yeah. I guess. Right, um, yeah, yeah. So that was one of the things that I did that was sort of a little bit outside of the box in terms of trying to access his character. Yeah. Let's talk about him for a second. You know, he gets less page time because that's his own fault. You know, because yeah. he, <laughs> he ditched her. So uh, he is the perfect boyfriend until he isn't. Um, do, you get, do you know who Johnny Jonathan Young Kim is? I don't know. I saw your note about it, but I, I have not heard of him. All right, let me let me share my screen. This is good for for everyone out there. Let me share. Let me let me Google him. Everyone out there, go go Google him. Let me let me just pull this up for a second. Don't worry, everyone. We'll get there. So he is he is an astronaut. He's a U.S. Navy lieutenant. He was a Navy SEAL. He's a doctor, and now he's an astronaut. He's raised in California. And, you know, this good chiseled jaw, and I'm sure he has, like, you know, at least 12 or 13 ab muscles. I mean, <laughs> he is just, he oh is God. the guy. Yeah, it, the, even people made memes about him. There's like, this is, he's not a meme. He's like the guy who everyone, if you're a guy, you want to be him. If you're a girl, you want to be with him. He's the guy <laughs> that makes every Asian kid out there, you know, like, oh, no, I'm not going to be Johnny Kim. So I, I thought you knew who he was, and you kind of wrote Tay to be this astronaut kind of guy, this per- perfect specimen of a, of a guy. That's so funny. I can't believe I've never heard of him before until this moment. Um, but yeah, wow. How is that? How is that person even real? Oh my gosh! <laughs> I know, right? He's he's a Navy SEAL and a doctor at the same time. How can you? And an astronaut. It's like leave some achievement for the rest of us. Exactly. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. No. He he gave Asian parents fuel for the next thirty years. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so we're talking about Tay. Tay is is Rose's uh, former boyfriend who is just seems like a great guy. I mean, he's, he's, he's nice. He's good looking. He is clean. He has a clean apartment. He's fastidious. Uh, and he has goals and dreams. And he, one of the things he dreamed about was applying to be one of the first humans on Mars. What was it called? Arc four project or something? Yeah. Like Arc four. <laughs> so he, he applies and you know, the whole time he's like, I'm not going to get in. Don't worry about this. And then he gets in and he has to make that choice between this kind of 
um, messy relationship he's in with Ro and being one of the first humans on Mars, and he chooses Mars and leaves her. And that kind of, seems kind of like a theme with Ro, with people leaving her and abandoning her, not just for other people, but for other planets. So, yeah. What can you tell us about Tay? Yeah, um, it's funny. I think like uh, you're definitely not the first person I've talked to you about Tay who kind of mentioned that he's sort of on paper this perfect boyfriend. <laughs> um, and I didn't think of him in that way while I was working on the book and working on his character. But I definitely see how he reads that way, especially given the fact that he is sort of everything Ro does not see herself to be. He's very put together. He has ambitions and goals. As you said, he's very clean. And, <laughs> um, you know, he's very health conscious. Like he forces her to go jogging with him and all this stuff. Um, and I was really interested in what a, what a dynamic would look like between someone like him versus someone like Ro, who you know, doesn't have clean wine glasses ever in her house and, you know, just doesn't really know how to take care of herself in these very basic uh, ways. They seem kind of daunting to her. I was really interested in what, you know, two people like that would be drawn to in each other. And one of the things that she says in the book is that she begins to suspect that he likes her because he sees her as a project to be fixed. Yeah. And um, I think that that is really key to why their dynamic works in some ways, but also why it doesn't. Um, and they really genuinely love each other. I, it was yeah. really important to me to write about the things that were going really right in their relationship, just to then paint a picture of why it all didn't go right. And, you know, Tay, for all his um, his really good qualities as a partner and as a human being, He's also fairly controlling and he yeah. really wants to sort of make her over into what he sees as her as her kind of highest or best self. And uh. um, at the stage of her life that she's at when they get together, she's really not open to that. And I think yeah. that's actually kind of her prerogative too, to be a little bit of a disaster in some ways. And sure. he is in some ways like a perfect boyfriend, but he's definitely not perfect for her because... Yeah. She doesn't even really know what she's looking for. And I think his his own certainty, at least initially about their relationship, really unnerves her and sort of <laughs> causes her to freak out a little uh, bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. I think I think you wrote him very fair, you know, like he he's not exactly perfect, but then he lets her down in a huge, huge way, but at the same time you can see why, but at the same time you wonder, could it have worked out? You know, is is really well done. Is really well done. Uh, the other two main characters, well, there's there's her best friend Yunhee, which um, another on paper looks perfect in, in a lot of ways. You know, she's she's the one who has been with her the longest, but also you know, there's a little bit of a dynamic between them too, right? A little hierarchy between their their friendship with each other, yeah. Yeah, I wrote Yunhee as sort of like a, um, she's a kind of a composite of various childhood friends that I've had. Uh -huh. um, and also in some ways a stand in for a lot of these ideals of Korean American femininity that I grew up with uh -huh. and that often felt like I could not measure up to. Um, yeah, yeah Yunhee is very, you know, she's very fashion conscious. She's um, someone who knows kind of similarly to Tay, like exactly what she wants. Like she wants um, a sort of more traditional life of marriage and kids and the house and the whole bit. Um, at the same time, I, it was important to me to make sure that she wasn't this flat 2D, like Little Miss Perfect character. Like yeah. one of the things that uh, Ro and Yoon-hee provide for each other is 
this sort of understanding of who this person is to them and who this person has been when they're not at their best moments. And just as Yoon-hee provides support for Ro in so many ways, Ro also provides Yoon-hee with like, she's sort of a container for her and all of her own insecurities that she feels like she can't admit. And as the story goes on, we also come to understand that Yoon-hee's approach to life comes from um, a wanting to sort of avoid and and gloss over the the natural uglinesses that come into anyone's life yeah yeah that that re- that read true as well that you can see that in her that she wants to be perfect but even if it's not perfect she still wants to pretend to be perfect yeah yeah, so. yeah which i think is a thing that so many so many of us asian americans relate to yeah yeah and then uh the the main relationship that runs through the whole book is the uman apa um, mom and dad, and I love the fact. I think we're at the point in society where you you never defined it for us. You never told us what Uman Apa stands for. But I think we we've, we've watched enough TV or we've watched enough where we know a little bit of Korean now, so we know as mom and dad, and they're completely opposites of each other. Uh, and one one thing I wanted to ask you is what what parts of of her mom did Ro get, and what parts of her dad did Ro get? Oh, I love that question. I think um, I'll start with her dad first because I think she was like kind of closer to him A growing up. A little more, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think from from her dad, Ro gets this sort of curiosity about the world and not just an interest in the world, particularly the natural world, but also just this this drive to understand how things work. Like she's uh-huh. really fascinated by structures and systems and um, is just very curious about what it's like to be not necessarily a human creature, like what it's like to be an animal and Uh and whatever that means. Um, And she also gets from him, I think, this sort of disregard for convention in some ways. Like she's not as traditionally ambitious as some of, as as her friend Yoon-hee is, certainly. And he's a little dreamy, yeah. He's a yeah, he's a romantic, yeah. He's definitely a dreamer, and I think that's one of the reasons he's so drawn to like far flung locations, like the Bering Vortex, which is where uh-huh. he he does a lot of his research. Um, so I think there is a little bit of that kind of wanderer quality mm-hmm. to her, yeah. and from her mom, I think she gets this sense of um, wanting to care for other people because I think her mom, uh, her relationship with her mother is quite complicated, but yeah. Her mother is, you know, at the end of it all, a very caring person who yeah. is doing what she can to try and like mm-hmm. make a better life for her family. Mm-hmm. And her mother's drive is often for stability and for home. And I think Ro, just as much as she wants to be that explorer and that adventurer in the way that her father and her ex-boyfriend have no problem being, she yeah. also kind of craves stability and home in the way that her yeah. mo- she often saw her mother doing when she was growing up. And I think maybe that Asian mom stubbornness, I think she got a little bit of that. From oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we all did. We all did. <laughs> all right. Well, let's, um, oh, we forgot Dolores. We didn't talk about Dolores at all. I think uh, another, you know, obviously she's the cover girl of the book for the U.S. copy, at least. Uh, she is a, I forgot the scientific name. I had it at one point, but I forgot the scientific name. She's a Pacific octopus. Um Larger than than most, right? She's a giant octopus. Yeah, yeah. So giant Pacific octopuses are like the biggest species of octopus. But if you ever like go to see one in an aquarium, they're they're not actually all that huge. I mean, yeah. if you found one like in your bathtub, that would be terrifying. But like right. 
I made Dolores kind of larger than life in that she's like 10 to 12 feet across. She uh-huh. kind of takes up a whole room. And um, none of the things that she does are sort of outside the realm of possibility for what octopuses in our world can do. Right. But I wanted to make her, I wanted to sort of like heighten her a qualities. Little mythical, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because she's like eight year, eight or nine years old, yeah, or maybe even older than that. Yeah, she's um, yeah. They general uh, generally they don't live past like three to five years, especially in mm-hmm. captivity. But um, Dolores is um, actually, I think in the novel, I say she's between somewhere between nineteen and twenty five years old, which is yeah. much older than <laughs> really, your, yeah. the typical octopus lifespan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's cool. So we'll talk a little bit more about her in a second. Uh, all right, let's get into the plot a little. We've talked about the plot a little bit, so we don't want to. We don't have to spoil everything. Thing. But what what were you setting out to write when you wrote this book? It it was kind of one woman's journey through life kind of story, or what were you thinking when you were writing this? Uh, yeah, I think I wanted it to be a story of coming of age and also learning how to come home to yourself, and also I wanted it to be a portrait of this particular character of Roe and to sort of look at how a person can go through these various losses and come out all come out on the other side of it like a, a more whole person perhaps i and yeah. i think i said this earlier but i i wrote i wrote the bulk of this novel in fall of 2020 when we were you know in the deep <laughs> deep dark stages of the pre-vaccine era uh-huh. of the pandemic and yeah. loss and heartbreak were definitely much definitely like very big in my mind at the time. Um, I was also going through a breakup of my own. So, and that doesn't, that didn't, that didn't necessarily influence the writing of the book, but definitely some of the emotions that I was going through went into the writing of it. Sure. So it felt a bit cathartic in that way. Yeah. But yeah, I wanted to write a story about um, how someone can survive all these upheavals, both in their present day and in their, their past lives and learn how to maintain hope despite those experiences. Yeah. And, um, you know, we are the Infatuation Podcast, so I, I just really wanted to to look into the way that you wove in Korean-American culture uh, in a way that was subtle, you know, like, it, it's, like, in your description of the book, you didn't necessarily have to say that she's Korean-American. She could be almost any ethnicity, but you wrote her as Korean-American, and there are some subtle things that, that made her Korean-American, and... You know, and her friends have Korean, some of them have Korean names, some of them are Rachel, you know, or, or, you know, or Aurora, right? But you, you put it in there. Did you intentionally, how did you approach heritage and culture when you were writing this book? Yeah, I think that one of the things that I struggled with when I first started writing, especially writing from a Korean American point of view, was I often felt like I constantly had to explain things to the imagined reader. Yeah. And, it wasn't until maybe like a couple years ago that I realized that that imagined reader this whole time, you know, to my unconscious mind was this imagined white American reader that would sort of uh-huh. be judging and asking questions the whole time about like, well, why didn't you explain this? And I need to understand this cultural concept. Um, and I feel like it's such a, it's understandable that many of us feel that way, especially as writers or creatives, um, where for so long we felt like we had to explain and to justify our presences and our stories in this world. Mm-hmm. But I agree, we're at a place in in um, art and culture and society where I think more and more, I, I, well, I always think readers are 
more are more intelligent than we give them credit for. Like a reader can pick <laughs> up on stuff and like yeah. they don't need to know the exact technical meaning of every word to be able to understand like, oh, this is a food in this scene or this yeah. is like a particular emotion that they're talking about. Yeah. And um, I think towards that, Toni Morrison has been really influential for me in that regard. I mean, she's mm. obviously one of the great literary geniuses of the world, but she always sort of um, in her writing and in her writing about writing talked about this idea that, you know, you could just write about characters living in a, in a given community, living their lives and um, just not feel like you had to explain any of that to yeah. the white reader. And I found that so yeah. powerful. And there are lots of other writers who do this as well, who are just kind of like, we're just going to be immersed in this world. And how many times have I have, you know, we read books where, you know, it's about white characters and <laughs> they might be doing things that are completely alien to us. And so yeah, that from was the South or something you know, yeah. Or European. Yeah. Or like Jane Austen, you know, I grew up Absolutely. reading all that stuff and yeah. it's not a knock on Jane Austen, but it's like, I, I just got it without having to be explained to or handheld. And I kind of figured I could just do that as well in yeah. writing about uh, Rose story and Rose world definitely is a reflection of the world that I grew up in as a Korean American person where I grew up in North New Jersey, which is not an undiverse part of America. Like there's lots of Asian Americans, lots of people of color, but I grew up in a very white pocket of North Jersey. And so me and my family were like one, maybe like one of two Asian American families in my community at the time. Um, and so I grew up fairly culturally isolated. And yet at the same time, we were a very church going Korean family. And so uh, when we went to church on the weekends, I we had access to all this community, other Korean American people in the North Jersey region who were also right, attending right. church. And so I think this is pretty common for a lot of immigrant kids, but I felt like I was often toggling back and forth between these two extremes. And that was something yeah. I wanted to explore too in in writing Rose story. Yeah. 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 Now that definitely came across. So that leads us to the ending. Did you, did you wrestle with it? Did you have alternate endings written down on note cards and flip a coin or uh, did you know where it was going to go? Um, so I actually, the ending, the last chapter of the book was a more recent edition that I worked on with my agent before we um, submitted the book to publishers. It originally ended with just row kind of looking out at um well, I don't know if I should say this because it's a spoiler, but well, um, no, we're, we're in the spoiler zone. So if they're okay. here, it's their own fault. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we're in the safe space. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So originally it just ended with Ro watching the lift off of, of Tay's rocket and sort of kind of accepting the fact that like, well, this is this is the end of our relationship officially. Um, but also this means new beginnings for for her and for everyone else as well. Um, but my agent and I talked about the book um, and about edits that she kind of wanted to make to it and that I also was on board with. And one of the things we talked about was how to sort of get her back to the aquarium and to get her back to Dolores in some way in a, in a different context than the one that she's been in for the rest of the book. So that ending was, a, again, a more recent addition. But I I was really happy that we decided to take it in that way because I think one of the most important relationships in the book, as you identified, is the one between her and Dolores and what Dolores means to her. And so it felt really fitting to me that we end on a note with her, um, with Dolores, but this time with the addition of her cousin's daughter, Kate, uh, Caitlin, who she brings because she, or I'm sorry, not Caitlin, Haley. Her name was Caitlin in an earlier draft. Um, but she, yeah, I wanted her to have this moment of bringing her to the aquarium because it's a way of passing on 
the kind of lessons that she got from her father that she still cherishes to this day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, are you ready for it? Now, I might cut this because it's so silly. Yeah, are you ready for my ending theories that I was coming, you know, when I was getting to like page 200, I came up with my theories? Yeah, you, I, I, I would love to hear. You can shoot these down. These are ridiculous. All right. I thought that at the end of the book, the rocket ship lifts off, but then Tay walks in the door. <laughs> he, he abandoned Arc 4 to be with Ro. Oh, too, wow. Too that sappy. would have been a twist. That would have been too sappy, though. It would have been boo, you know? <laughs> I mean, I love the idea of them finding a way back to each other, but as they're as 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 the person who like thought a lot of long and hard about their relationship and how I wanted it to end, I feel like it wouldn't he be right for back. them. He yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, how about this one? How about Dolores gets shipped to California, but under the condition that Roe goes with her? Mm. Ooh. No. <laughs> that's almost like a whole other sequel, I feel. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Her life in Palo Alto. I could see it. Yeah, she's going to like uh, Diablo Valley College. Or <laughs> <laughs> but then she'd have to deal with like, you know, the people. The tech guy. The, all, the, all the white tech people, yeah. including including the person who was trying to be Dolores' new owner, essentially. Yeah. I don't know that Ro would have been down with that. <laughs> all right. Yeah, shoot that one down, too. All right. Last one. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> the phone rings and it's a pop. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh my no, god. No, okay. He he's he's not around. <laughs> he's not around anymore. Um yeah, I mean the phone calls throughout the book. I definitely wanted to keep it a little bit mysterious. Yeah. Um but you know, in my in my head, he's not physically around he in this world be. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Been, how many years it is it's been years that he's been chilling in, you know, Ketchikan, Alaska or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you actually I, I thought you would leave that in a little longer. I think you kind of resolve that a little before halfway through the book or so. I don't remember, but I felt like you could have kept that that alive a little longer and I would have been okay with it. <laughs> Originally, it was, I, I didn't have that moment or I, that moment where she realizes it's it's spam call or she realizes that particular call is a spam call. Like it, it originally was different. It was much more unresolved, but I had a conversation with my editor about it where we kind of going back and forth and she was very respectful about that decision where she was like, if you want to leave it unresolved, that's up to you. Uh-huh. But I think she was sort of pushing for me to take the narrative in a direction of like more clear growth for dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought, I kind of thought, okay, I'm actually okay with um, sort of wrapping that up a little bit um, while still leaving the question of what really did happen to her dad open-ended if it helps the character to move on a little bit more. Well, and that's why you're a writer and I'm not, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I love hearing your alternate endings. Like, yeah, I, I really like the the first one of a Tay right. walking in. <laughs> I'll write some fan fiction. I'll, I'll put it on a blog or somewhere. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, everyone out there, get a copy of Sea Change. Uh, you know where to get it, but hopefully you'll find one at one of your local bookstores and your local independent bookstores. And give it a read and let... Let Gina know your endings for the book as well. Uh, all right, Gina Chung, you have survived our difficult questions. Are you ready for our lightning round? Yes, I'm ready. All right, let's do this. Uh, when you go to a museum or, or an aquarium, what's what's your local museum or aquarium in, in Brooklyn? Uh, the closest one would be, the. it's called the New York Aquarium, and it's in Coney Island in, in South right. Brooklyn. What's your favorite exhibit at the Coney Island Aquarium? Oh, my gosh. I... I really love looking at, so I don't know if they still have this exhibit, but the last time I went, um, 
they had it and it was called spineless and it was all the invertebrates of the uh-huh. of the of the aquarium and of course they had a giant pacific octopus and i went to yeah. go see it which was really lovely um i don't think it was in a mood to like interact with people because it was kind of just like sitting there Balled chilling. Up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um but it, i i loved that it was it was watching everyone though it was kind yeah. of like we were the the exhibit for the octopus but my favorite thing that I saw there, I think, was um, the jellyfish because they're oh, yeah. they're so beautiful and like so the way that they glow and yeah, it is very serene and um, it was just such a such a beautiful kind of alien experience to see them. I also love the sharks because sharks are just really cool sharks and are cool. <laughs> yeah, I also there's so many kids and families at the aquarium, of course, and. Yeah. I also just loved watching the children react to the sharks too, where they're all yeah. like daring each other to go up to the glass and then shrieking yeah. <laughs> the moment a shark comes up. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, aquariums are great. All right. Uh, what's your go-to order when you go to a Korean restaurant? Mm, uh, that would have to be in most cases, bibimbap, which is the uh, um, stone bibimbap stone that you get. Oh, yeah. And then the rice gets all crispy at the bottom. It's the best. A little scorch. Yeah. No, yes. that's that's my go-to as well. I love a little bibimbap. And it's got everything. It's got the proteins, got the carbs, got a little vegetables, a little yeah. spice. The yeah. egg on top is like oh, just, the egg. Yeah. yeah the chef's yeah. kiss of it all. Absolutely. All right. And luckily, you don't have to clean that bowl, right? Because that would be a... <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i mean anytime i've tried to make it you just have to let the bowl soak overnight it's yeah, impossible it's a, mess. <laughs> it's a mess all right and i don't know if you can do this off of your top off the top of your head can you give us a shark teeny recipe i can um <laughs> so it's funny because my publisher actually asked me for the shark teeny recipe because they, <laughs> they hosted a media lunch w- uh, featuring my book and some other books like in the lead up to publication so i do have a recipe now for it um ratios are totally you know suggestions you can add more more or less uh depending on what you'd like but um the way i like to make it is i usually do mm, like a one and a half or two to two shots of gin whatever gin you'd like doesn't Uh have the the less fancy the better that's more true to the the spirit (laughs) of the book um with uh about two to three shots of Mountain Dew. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then yeah. you you can add some jalapeno as a garnish, some chopped, some some uh, sliced jalapeno as a garnish to the drink yeah. as well. And that's pretty much it. You can add more or less gin if you'd like. Um, highly recommend kicking back and listening to music and, you know, just enjoying your Sharktini. <laughs> Enjoy Sharktini, absolutely. And at the end of the show, we like to ask our guests to choose an infatuation. An infatuation is anyone in the Asian community that you admire or has inspired you, living or deceased. So, Gina Chung, who is your infatuation? Oh, my gosh. Um, There are so many to choose from, but I think Uh I'm going to say Maxine Hong Kingston, Uh who is just, you know, the OG, one of the OG Asian-American writers. Absolutely. Yeah, her book, The Woman Warrior. Um, I actually uh-huh. got to meet her at a signing that she did a couple years ago. And so I have an autographed version of the book. And that book just changed my life. And the way that she tells stories, too, in that book is just so brilliant mm-hmm. and unprecedented. The way it sort of treads the line between memory and fantasy and sort of more realist. And I love yeah. that she does that. Yeah, no, that book. And uh, Chinaman is also very good. Mm. Yeah, she that era, you know, the Amy Tans, the Maxine Hong, you know, they're the queens. You know, they, they in the 90s, 80s and 90s, man, those guys, those women. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, great pick, great pick. Uh, someday, who knows, someday you will be the inspiration to some little girl who said, hey, I read Sea Change when I was 10 years old. Yeah, so, 
So we'll see. We'll see. All right. So everyone out there, go get a copy. Uh, you can follow Gina on Instagram at Gina the Chung or her website, uh, Gina-Chung.com. And I'll put all these uh, these handles in the show notes. Hey, Gina, thanks so much for coming on with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Yeah, this was a little last minute, everyone. <laughs> we just we just set this up this week. I, I'm on spring break, and I was like, you know what? This would be a good week to get a bunch of episodes out there. So everyone, I hope that you enjoyed listening to this. I hope you learned a little bit about not just the book, but maybe a little bit about uh, Gina and you know the writing process. So thanks for coming on, and uh, good luck with the book tour. It's uh, you know, you're kind of staying local for a little while. Are you going to head across the United States a little bit too, or what's the plan? No, I don't think so, unfortunately. But uh, I'll be mostly in the New York City, New Jersey area, and then traveling a little bit up to upstate New York. I'll be at in Ithaca for a college festival that's happening up there, and then um, taking a quick detour into Rochester, New York. So mostly on the East Coast for now, unfortunately, but... Yeah. <laughs> so anyone out in the East Coast, I think you can see the full list of tour stops on Gina's Instagram. So go check that out. If you want to get a copy signed and say hello to Gina yourself, go do that. Thank you out there for listening to us. I hope that you enjoyed it and learned something. And as I always mention, you can write to us at infatuationpodcast at gmail.com. And give us a follow on Instagram and or Facebook at The Infatuation Podcast. And of course, all these details will be in the show notes. And so, uh, hey, if you if you know someone who might enjoy this podcast, send them the link. That's the easiest way for us to get our podcast into more more ears out there. Is if you actually send the link, because you know people are lazy and they don't want to look up, you know, on Spotify. They want to Google search it. So send them the actual link so it's one click away, and uh, let them know where they can listen to us. So, hey, on on behalf of Gina and myself, we hope that you're all happy, healthy, and safe out there. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.